Hey everyone, welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are going to be continuing the Manchester tapes with the Stone Roses. You can't have Manchester without the Stone Roses. They're probably, aside from the Smiths, they're probably one of the earliest instances of a Manchester band to make it really, really big. I'm excited to talk about the Stone Roses. There are a lot of things that I didn't know about them before I went into this. So I'll just kind of skip on my usual intro and just honestly jump right into it. So first, we're going to be talking about the lead singer and the frontman of the band, Ian Brown. And Ian was born February 20th, 1963 in Warrington, Cheshire. He grew up in Orford until about age six, so he was from the Manchester area. His father, George, was a wood joiner, and his mother, Jean, was a receptionist at a paper factory. He moved with his parents and his two siblings to Temperley Altrincham, which is kind of like a market town sort of area in the Trafford area of Manchester. Here is where he attended Park Road County Primary Infant and Junior School. Oh, that was a mouthful. <laughs> and then he went to Altrincham Grammar School for boys leaving at age 16. His musical interests were mainly punk bands like The Clash, Sex Pistols, and Slaughter and the Dogs. One day, as a child, his aunt gave him her record player and her big record collection. He recalls that there were a lot of 7-inch singles from the likes of The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, The Supremes. So, as a kid, what you do when you get a giant record collection like that is you obviously listen to them over and over and over again, and that's kind of what he did. He was really fascinated with the Beatles in particular. He really enjoyed their music. He said that only one album he had was the Smash Hits compilation album from Jimi Hendrix, and this one also greatly influenced him as well with his music. So one of Ian's friends from the area, Peter Garner, he would go on to be the bassist of the Stone Roses. The two of them actually attended the making of the Clash single Bank Robber in Manchester at the time, which is kind of crazy that that happened. So now we're going to move on to the formation of how Stone Roses came about. So Ian started off as being the bassist. I know I said that Peter Garner would go on to be the bassist, but as the initial starting point for the band, Ian primarily was the bassist for the band. And the band, before it was even Stone Roses, it was called The Patrol. And this was formed in 1980 with guitarist John Squire. Ian and John knew each other from Altrincham School, so they were school friends, and they actually knew each other from a really early age, just kind of around the same area, but they didn't really start talking to each other and becoming friends until they went to the same boys' school together. Also in the band was singer-guitarist Andy Cousins and drummer Simon Wollstonecroft, or Cy, as some people call him. So the Patrol, like I mentioned before, it was their first band that they ever did, but this wasn't where the Stone Roses would come from. This was actually a Clash-inspired band, but this formation and this band didn't last very long at all. They created an early demo tape, but they decided to change the direction with their music. But by 1981, they had run out of steam at this point. Like, they weren't really sure what they were doing and where they wanted to go with the music. They just weren't really sure. So at this point, they had run out of steam, and Ian sold his bass guitar to buy himself a motor scooter, and Cy, Simon, joined the band Freak Party. This was a pre-Smiths band with members Johnny Marr and Andy Rourke. So he was with them for a bit of time, which is quite cool. John Squire continued to practice guitar while working as an animator for Cosgrove Hall. And I did a little bit of um, background research onto Cosgrove Hall because I did not know that he was an animator which is quite interesting. So Cosgrove Hall was a really big animation studio in Manchester. Cosgrove Hall was known for their animated kids programs, like TV shows, and they would also have animated films and movies as well. So that's really cool that he was an animator by trade. I like that. That's really cool. So in the meantime, Ian ran a Northern Soul night in a Salford club. So Northern Soul is kind of like a dance movement which formed in the 60s in the English North and in the Midlands. It was based off of 60s American soul music with beats and fast tempo. So at the Salford Club, he had one night a week at this club where he would have a kind of DJ set, if you will, of Northern soul music, which is quite cool. John and Andy created their own band called the Fireside Chaps with bassist Gary Moundfield. 
or Moonfield, <laughs> and singer David Carty and drummer Chris Goodwin. They eventually changed their name to The Waterfront, which was kind of a jangle pop band. That's kind of the sound that they were producing, if you will. Chris left the band, actually, before they recorded their first demo, and John asked Ian to be the singer of the band. Ian took him up on his offer after he threw a party at his house in Holm. Funny enough, American R&B singer Gina Washington told Ian himself that he was going to be a star and that he should be a singer. You know, Ian was only doing bass at this time. He was not a singer by any means. And so for him to get asked, you know, to be a singer in the band and then to be told, like, you're going to go big, you should be a singer, it's just kind of solidified in him, like, okay, this is the role i got to step into. I'll take it. And so Ian joined the band in 1983, but the waterfront eventually kind of fizzled out like some of their other projects did. John tried to form a new band and went to Ian for help. And for this band, they brought back Simon as the drummer, who actually turned down the role for drums for the Smiths. So again, he was in that pre-Smiths band called Freak Party at the time, and he was doing that before the Smiths became the Smiths. And so Simon stepped off of that to join back on with this new band here. And Pete Garner, again, he came on as bassist. So now we're starting to kind of form into what the Stone Roses really is. Ian took singing lessons for three weeks as he felt like his voice couldn't really live up to the expectations that were on him because I don't think he really considered himself a singer at all. He was playing bass forever. He never thought of being a singer. And so he felt like he had limitations on his voice that he needed to push through. And so he took some lessons for a few weeks and he was ready to go. It was said that John Squire had come up with the name The Stone Roses as kind of like a contrast on words like stone and roses, like they're different things. They're very contrasting. That's kind of where that comes from. After six months of rehearsal, Simon left the band to join the band The Color Field. So he was with them for a bit and then he came back. Um, they got drummer Chris back on for the band, but he only lasted one rehearsal. So they're just coming in and out of band members. They're trying to figure out like where they fit in. So after some auditions, they eventually recruited Alan Wren, or his name is known as Rennie. So Rennie came on in 1984. They recorded their first demo tape in August, making 100 cassettes with John's artwork on the cover. And they were now trying to secure gigs in Manchester. They played their first show as the Stone Roses on October 23, 1984, supporting Pete Townsend at the Moonlight Club in London. Ian had actually sent a copy of the Stone Roses demo tape to the promoter of the Moonlight Club. He wrote a letter to go with it, and it said, I'm surrounded by skagheads. I want to smash them. Can you give us a show? So he got on there, so it seemed to work. Journalist Gary Johnson for Sounds Magazine was actually at this show, and he gave the band their first interview, which made them really popular for record companies wanting to take them in. But Howard Jones, the former manager of the Hacienda Club in Manchester, I talked about the Hacienda in my Oasis episode where I mentioned that the Hacienda is an extremely famous club uh, music venue in Manchester where a lot of the up-and-coming Manchester bands would play. So this was just, you know, an extremely famous, reputable, well-known club in Manchester. So Howard Jones was the former manager. And producer Martin Hannett and Tim Chambers agreed to help the band produce their debut album, setting up Thin Line Records to release it, with Howard taking on the management role for the band. But now we're getting into kind of the early tours that they did and some of the demos that they were creating before their debut album. The first recording session with Martin Hannett was in January of 1985 at Strawberry Studios in Stockport. So this was the intention of recording tracks for a demo single and a debut album. Their first single was actually a double A side track called So Young slash Tell Me. They were invited on Piccadilly Radio to perform their new song, I Wanna Be Adored. And so this song, I think everyone knows this song. It became really huge. But at this point in time, it was just a song that they were introducing. It wasn't on obviously the album yet. So the band went on to tour in Sweden in April just for kind of a couple of shows just to kind of get out there. And then their first gig in Manchester happened when they came back at the International One venue, which was ran by future band managers Matthew Cummings and Gareth Evans. 
On July the 20th, they performed at a warehouse party that actually helped to draw interest to the band. So that was really good. They were starting to kind of slowly build up some momentum and some kind of support, but it was still a bit of a struggle. In August, they went on to record their debut album, but was quite unhappy with what was produced. And it was shelved, actually. This was not their debut album, even though they thought it would be. It was actually later released, and it was called Garage Flower. You know, they were gaining some momentum and somewhat of a decent following, but Manchester was a different story. Their look that they were, you know, sporting and the sounds of their music was really different to what was kind of usually played for the Manchester scene. And they were very early pioneers of the Manchester music scene as well. So if you can kind of imagine bands from England in the early mid-80s, it's that very kind of pop, synth, new wave, like leather and like, you know, the hairspray and all that stuff. Like the Stone Roses was just so different to what that even was. But at this point in time, when they were trying to get a following, it was just really difficult for them because their sound was also different. Again, if you can imagine like Depeche Mode or Duran Duran or Tears for Fears, like any of those really big bands that were just very pop centric, what was very popular, and then they're coming along and they're producing quite different stuff and they're looking different. So they were kind of struggling to keep their own originality, but to gain a following even in their home city of Manchester. So that was kind of the struggle that they were facing at that time. An interesting idea that the band had to draw more attention to themselves in Manchester was for Ian and Wren to go on a graffiti campaign across Manchester. They would spray paint the band's name along walls from West Didsbury to the city center. It kind of backfired in the sense that the campaign gave them negative publicity because they're like, who the hell is the Stone Roses spray painting their name everywhere? But it worked because people were now talking about them more. So I think it's kind of genius that they did that. But some people think it's really cool. I think it's awesome. I think it was kind of an interesting, unique idea. Like, I've never seen anyone do that before. So kind of kudos to them. In 1986, they began working on their new single called Sally Cinnamon. Singles that they had planned to follow up on releasing, I Want to Be Adored, and this is the one were shelved, at least for now. They officially brought on Gareth Evans as their manager, and they used the International One Club as their official rehearsal space. And so around this time, they played a few gigs. August 11th was their gig at the Mardi Gras Club in Liverpool, and they were getting gigs around London and stuff, but again, they were struggling a bit with Manchester. As Ian and John were collaborating more on the songwriting process, they thought that they should take a bigger slice out of the band's money for them because they thought, well, we're writing more and we're putting more towards the band with collaborating on songwriting, so the two of us should take a bigger cut from the band's money. Andy and Ren left the band in protest because they were not cool with that idea, but they eventually came back, so they thought about it or they hashed out the terms. And in 1986, right, this year wasn't really big for the band necessarily they didn't do a whole lot in this year but they did come out with more tunes like sugar spun sister where they took influence from the jesus and mary chain and primal scream for that song specifically in early 1987 gareth negotiated a one-off release for the band with black fm revolver record labels to create black records label and on this, they recorded Sally Cinnamon officially, and when it was released, it sold over 1,000 copies, but it failed to really make an impact on the fans, at least at this time. So in June, Peter Garner left the band until they could find a replacement for him, who was Rob Hampson, but Rob only lasted a week. Their waterfront bassist, Manny, came back as Garner's permanent replacement in the band, and according to Ian, when Manny joined the band, everything fell into place because Manny had really good timing, he had a really creative mind. So when Manny joined, it just kind of really more so solidified the band and it elevated their music as a whole when he joined. So in early 1988, they played a gig at Dingwalls in London. Jeff Travis was in attendance to the show and he was the founder of Rough Trade Records. And also a representative from Zomba Records was there too. Both companies wanted to sign the band, but Rough Trade offered to fund studio time for the band to record a single. 
and this single was Elephant Stone. And actually, what's so interesting, Peter Hook of New Order produced that single. So Peter actually was going to produce their debut album for the Stone Roses, but unfortunately, he had prior engagements with New Order. So he suggested that they work with producer John Leckie instead. In May of 88, they performed one of their first major shows in Manchester, finally. It was the International Two Club with local band James. So the Stone Roses, which is really funny here, they tried to one-up the band James by putting up flyers around the town, saying that they were actually the headliners for the show. And they went as far as to try to delay their star time at the gig to get the headlining spot themselves before James could. And another part of music history which is really interesting, in attendance to the show was a 16-year-old Liam Gallagher. And when Liam saw the Stone Roses play at this club at that day, this really solidified in Liam to go on to form a band. And we all know how that goes. I talked about Oasis in my last episode if you want to check out that. So Ronnie McKenna, who was a music scout for Zomba Records, was also in attendance at this concert, and he signed the band to the label. He transferred the band to the newly formed Silverstone Records subsidiary of Zomba Records. So the band was signed to an eight-album record deal, and they bought the Elephant Stone tapes from Rough Trade Records, and they released these tapes as an official single in October of 1988. So finally now, they're getting their traction, they're getting the respect that they deserve. They can finally come out with their debut album. So this is years in the making, guys. This is crazy. So in 88-89, the band went on to start recording their debut album at Battery Studios and Conk Studios in London, and they went to Rockfield Studios in Wales. And Rockfield Studios is where Oasis recorded their debut album, and they recorded their second album, Morning Glory. And Rockfield Studios is just a very prestigious, well-known recording studio that a lot of bands went to. Like, Queen went and recorded there. They recorded Bohemian Rhapsody and a lot of their other music there. They recorded in these London studios because it was part of their contract that when they signed on to the record label, that they would have to work at the record label's own studios. And so these sessions, right, that they were starting off with their debut album lasted so long into the night, and they started late at night, too. So Rockfield was used kind of later on, but those first initial um, sessions were at those London studios. So Elephant Stone, like I mentioned, they officially released that. Elephant Stone made little impact, and they were still attracting small audiences at this time. The single that they came out with, Made of Stone, received more press but it only peaked at number 90 on the UK singles chart. So nothing that they were coming out with in terms of singles really made a big impact, which is kind of unfortunate, but they'll have their time in the charts very soon. The energy in the studio was quite relaxed. They weren't really putting pressure on themselves to kind of create a really momentous album. They were just kind of there in the studio. And as said by their producer, John Lucky. They were a band making their first album, and they didn't want to lose the opportunity on making it good. But they were still relaxed about it. They were like, yeah, we're just a band. We're aware of this opportunity. Let's just create a good album and see what happens. John Leckie has also said that him and the band drew some inspiration from the album Forever Changes by the band Love, which was sort of like a psychedelic rock album from the 60s. And bits of that can be heard throughout songs on the album, like Waterfalls in particular, that kind of like psychedelic, jangly pop kind of vibe that was going on on a few of those songs on the album. So they were taking inspiration from a lot of different places. Some consider the Stone Roses the originators of the Manchester movement and the template for Britpop with this album in particular. And that's what I was kind of saying before. They really were kind of the blueprint and the start of that Madchester movement, which I talked more about in my Oasis episode. But again, Madchester is kind of that scene in the Manchester area where it was kind of like a dance scene with a bit of rock, kind of like a also hippie scene. It was all kind of like an amalgamation of a couple of different genres coming together. But Madchester was really just kind of about the bands within the Manchester area. 
So the sound that they were coming out with was considered like the blueprint for that Madchester movement that would later kind of come with the bands like Happy Mondays and In Spiral Carpets. So the album cover for their debut album was actually designed by John Squire. So this was a Jackson Pollock-inspired painting titled Bye Bye Badman, which was in reference to the May 1968 riots in Paris. So there was that inspiration from it. And a quote from John from Q Magazine on the album cover is, Ian had met this Frenchman when he was hitching around Europe. This bloke had been in the riots, and he told Ian how lemons had been used as an antidote to tear gas. Then there was the documentary, a great shot at the start of a guy throwing stones at the police. I really liked his attitude. So that's kind of where the lemons come in as well. Um, the stone roses are kind of known for their lemon symbology. Is that the word? Symbolism? Symbolism. There we go. Um, they're known for lemons. And if you've seen around Manchester, like images or paintings of lemons, that's kind of a nod to the stone roses, but also it's kind of adopted by Manchester as like a Manchester symbol as well. And so the background of the painting is also based on the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. The band had visited the Causeway while playing at one of their shows. It's really different. It's a really unique album cover, but I think it fits and I think it works for what the band was trying to do and what they were trying to portray. And so their debut album finally was released on May 2nd, 1989. At first, this album received little attention from most of the fans and the press except for popular magazine NME and Melody Maker, who were documenting the Manchester scene at the time. There was kind of a mixed attitude about the album. Some articles were saying that the album was considered godlike. And some of them were saying that it was just quite good, or some were saying it was overhyped. It kind of just depends on what you think or what, you know, what mood they were in while they wrote these articles. So it all depends on what you think, too. I mean, this album was absolutely monumental. It was huge. Eventually, though, the album went on to go four times platinum, and it would sell over four million copies worldwide. So they did something right here. To support the album, the band went on to play a lot of high-profile shows, one of them which was on February 28, 1989, at the Hacienda in Manchester. So they were finally coming full circle. The album also went on to number 32 on the UK album charts, and their single, She Bangs the Drums, went on to number 1 on the UK independent chart. That's one of my favorite songs that they've done, honestly. It's a really, really good tune. On August the 23rd, 1989, the band went with John Leckie to record a new single, What the World is Waiting For, and they recorded this at Sawmill Studios in Cornwall. It's actually so remote that it can only be accessed by boat or footpath. I kind of like that, honestly, that it's kind of off the beaten path that you can't really find it unless you're actually going and search for it. That's really interesting. And here... They also recorded another single that would be released alongside this called Fool's Gold. Okay, so Fool's Gold, I would say, is their biggest hit. Um, I Want to Be Adored is probably the biggest hit that came across to America. Like, that's the song that I know them from. But Fool's Gold is, I would say, their biggest, most impactful song that they ever came out with. So fun facts on Fool's Gold that I kind of thought was really interesting. The song is built around a drum loop that is heard throughout the whole song. And this drum loop, right, this drum part, comes from the James Brown song, The Funky Drummer. And this sample in particular is considered one of the most used samples in music ever. It was being used by artists like LL Cool J, Public Enemy, Run DMC, The Beastie Boys, and more. John's guitar playing was inspired by Johnny Cash's rockabilly sound. So he was really interested in kind of creating a bit of a funky, slightly different guitar part over the drum loop. It was said by their producer, John Leckie, that they were just listening to the drum part over and over, trying to figure out, okay, what should we add over this? How should we put the guitar over this? You know, they would have to listen to the drum part over and over and over again on the tape and just keep like adding layers to it. 
So it's kind of cool how it all came about. This song in particular was considered the blueprint for British dance music in the 90s. I'm telling you, if you were a British teen in your youth in the 90s in Britain, I'm telling you, any club would be playing this tune. Any DJ would be promoting this tune everywhere. I'm not even from England and I know that to be a fact. That's just what it was. And so they released two versions of the song. They recorded the full length, which was 9 minutes and 53 seconds. This version was put on a 12-inch vinyl and it came out on cassette tape. So this is where probably most of the DJs would take the song and they would spin it on their decks, right? And then they came out with a shorter version, a 4-minute, 15-second version that was released as a 7-inch vinyl and it was used primarily for the radio, obviously, because radios don't want to play like a 10-minute song. It's just so crazy. And so Fool's Gold also made an impact in America as well. It was sampled on the Run DMC song, What's It All About, and the Bananarama song, Only Your Love. And I'm telling you, it's still being played to this day. But it's huge. They had their debut appearance on the Top of the Pops in November 1989. And this helped get the album a lot more mainstream exposure with the performance of Fool's Gold on that Top of the Pops performance. Soon, they were a national hit in England, being named alongside fellow Manchester band Happy Mondays as the pioneers to the baggy music scene. So I know I mentioned Manchester, but I never mentioned baggy before. Baggy kind of branches off from the Manchester scene. It's more in the alternative dance realm, if you will. Baggy also gets its name from the fashion associated with it. So if you could imagine in the 90s or late 80s, early 90s in Manchester wearing like baggy flare jeans and then it would be mixed with kind of like elements of hippie fashion, like tie-dye tops, general kind of 60s fashion, but also kind of like sporty football attire kind of mixed in there together. That's kind of what baggy is. Baggy is more of a fashion statement, but it also can be seen as a musical genre branching off from Manchester. And also what was really big in this baggy fashion scene were fishing hats, or as we know them in America as bucket hats. Those were a big staple fashion element to the baggy scene in the 90s. And these hats were mostly notably worn by Rennie in the band. Like, they came across as very everyday normal people with the fashion that they wore. They were wearing, like, their parkas, and they were wearing, well, Rennie was wearing his fishing hats. So they came across as very approachable, not as before with British pop bands that were coming across as very, I don't want to say manufactured, but you know what I mean. Like, they all kind of had that similar fashion in the 80s, whereas they were really different. I was trying to think of where in America the bucket hats became so popular, because I know in the 90s and early 2000s, bucket hats were popular. I just don't remember where exactly that trend stemmed from, but in England, it came from the baggy scene. So if you see someone in Manchester or, you know, in the north wearing those fishing hats, that's kind of where that came from, from the Stone Roses. So that's a bit of a fun fact for you right there. So Fool's Gold really became like the gold standard for what dance music and what the Manchester baggy scene was all about. It was the perfect launch pad for other bands to kind of stem off of them and branch off and make their music. They had a show that's extremely well known, May of 1990 at Spike Island in Halton, which was attended by over 27,000 fans. It's considered seriously legendary. And this raised them to a high reputation as a band as a whole. And what's funny was Noel Gallagher was in attendance at this gig. And this was where he considered to be one of his blueprints for pursuing music. I've seen kind of what the area of Spike Island looks like. It's very much so an open venue area outside. Ian was saying that there was kind of a big like dust cloud where people were, you know, dancing around and stomping their feet and it was kind of putting a big dust cloud in the air. And so people were also saying that you couldn't really hear much. Oh, Noel said that. Noel said that you couldn't hear a lot from the stage because the people 
and the crowd were just going nuts and they were on like ecstasy and they were on like drugs and so it was just a mad place but this is considered one of their most legendary shows ever the group also had won four nme readers poll awards they won band of the year best new band single of the year for fool's gold and album of the year so boom there you go they're finally receiving the accolades that they've always wanted in july of 1990 they released their last single with silverstone called one love which reached number four on the uk charts and this would be their last release for a while as they were actually about to enter a really long four-year legal battle with silverstone about the termination of their contract They apparently were not really happy with how they were not being properly paid by the label. So Zomba Records took out an injunction on the band in September to prevent them from recording with any other label, which is madness. They were trying so hard to stop the Stone Roses from releasing any other music with any other label. I think that's really slimy of Zomba Records to do that. In May 1991, the courts ruled in favor of the Stone Roses. So yay, they won. They could go on and record with anyone they wanted. So when they were finally released from their contract with Silverstone, they signed with Geffen Records. But Silverstone just cannot stop themselves. They appealed against the ruling for some mad reason. And so this delayed their second album coming out by another year. I mean, can you imagine? The court rules in your favor. Yeah, you're good to go. You can cut yourself free from this record label and record with anyone else you want. Silverstone is like, no, we want the Stone Roses. They can't have any other record label. It's just with us. And so they file an appeal. I am like shocked. I cannot believe that that was what was happening. I mean, like, who are they to say that they can't record with any other record label? It's just stupid. (laughs) It's just crazy. But anyway, so they finally move on from that. They're free. They can go on with Geffen Records. They're cool. So the band actually spent much of 92 and 93 traveling around Europe after their court case just to kind of get out of the Manchester club scene. They were kind of not over it, but they were really tired after what was happening in their legal case, and they just wanted to be free. But they began working on their album Second Coming in mid-1993. The progress on the album was slow, as Ian and John had taken on daddy duties with their kids, so they had to deal with all of that. And obviously, like I said, the legal issues that they were going through pushed the album to be released for another year, so it was just a lot going on for them. And their producer, John Lucky, left as the band wouldn't sign on a production contract. So they presumed the production duties with engineer Simon Dawson of Rockfield Studios in Wales, where they spent nearly a year with 10-hour days recording the album. A really funny story that came out of these recording sessions was Oasis was actually there at Rockfield Studios. They were recording definitely maybe at the same time. And so Rockfield Studios has kind of two separate recording studios on their property. They have Rockfield and then they have another one. Oasis was in one and the Stone Roses were in another one. So one night, Liam and Bonehead, the guitarist, they got up into a combine tractor. And also I should mention, this is in Wales, right? This is on a very remote property, farmland, right? There's a lot of farm area. Like, there's horses, and there's sheep, and there's, like, this, that, and the other. Like, there's a lot of farmland around this studio. And so they got onto a combine tractor late at night. They zoomed it over, and they were like, all right, let's see if we can spy on the Stone Roses. Because, again, like, they were huge Stone Roses fans. The Stone Roses hadn't came out with anything in years, and they see that the Stone Roses are recording. So they're like, oh, my God, let's go over and see. So they eventually get caught, but they brought the boys in and the Stone Roses and Liam and Bonehead had a bit of a uh, smoke (laughs) and they were just hanging out for a while. And so that's cool. But then the next day, the Stone Roses repaid them a visit, but the band was sleeping, so they couldn't really rise to the occasion for that. But I just thought that was really, really funny. So Second Coming was released on December 5th, 1994. The sound was a lot more kind of heavy blues inspired. Their song that became very popular, Love Spreads, reached number two on the UK single chart. The album overall received kind of mixed reviews. 
Some think the band had suffered because of the years-long gap between records that maybe they couldn't do it anymore, that maybe it, time had just gone on for too long and that they couldn't really get their signature sound anymore. But being that also that this came out in 1994, they had to now compete with popular Britpop music at the time because that's what was popular in 1994. Can you imagine? You came out with your debut album in 89. And now you're coming out with your second album in 94. You're dealing with a whole other monster in terms of music at the time. So their album could not really compete with what was coming out because Oasis was coming out. All these other bands were coming out. So it was just kind of really difficult for their album to reach the potential that I think it really could have been. And I think fans were maybe a little confused on like where this music was coming from in terms of the second coming album they just weren't really sure about it so i could see how that would maybe deter some people away from this album so now unfortunately this is where we see a lot of strings falling apart we see a lot of splitting and detaching and tensions within the band itself in March 1995, two weeks before their second coming tour, Rennie left the band after a disagreement with Ian. So that wasn't really good. He had left. He was like, bye, I'm done. A secret comeback tour of the UK was planned for April of 1995, but their cover was blown when the music press found out about these secret shows, and they announced the dates without informing the band or anybody. So these shows were subsequently canceled because they were coming out with this as a secret. And so in June 1995, they were canceled for their shows at the Glastonbury Festival that they were going to play at. John had broken his collarbone in a motorbike accident two weeks before the show. They couldn't really do a whole lot with that. They had to pull out of that. After John had a bit of time to recoup from the accident, they finally got together to put on a full UK tour from November to December in 95, which sold out in a day. So now they got their chance. Now they're going on to tour. But unfortunately, this would kind of be the beginning of the end. John was the first to announce that he was leaving the group in April the 1st of 1996. He said in a statement, After a lengthy deliberation, it is with great regret that I feel compelled to announce my decision to leave the Stone Roses. I believe all concerned will benefit from a parting of ways at this point, and I see this was the inevitable conclusion to a gradual social and musical separation we have undergone in the last few years. I wish them every success and hope they go on to greater things. My intentions are to continue writing whilst looking for partners in a new band and to begin working as soon as possible. Thanks for everything. I don't know if... Ian and John had ever buried the hatchet from John's announcement to leave the group because apparently it was said that the rest of the band put out a response to this and that they said that they had no idea that John thought about leaving and that they were shocked. They were just as shocked as everybody else because apparently they were in the middle of working on new material and he just kind of left out of nowhere. So I don't know if they buried the hatchet. I don't know if there's still like somewhat bad blood about that because Ian was like, what do you mean? Like you're leaving? I don't understand. It's just kind of, to him, it came out of nowhere. So that's kind of uh, unfortunate about that. But John left. And so after this, they began looking to replace John in the band. And you guys probably were not expecting this. I certainly did not expect this when I read it. But so while they were looking for a replacement, Slash, yeah, Slash of Guns N' Roses came to audition for the role of guitarist. Slash was in England at the time, and he heard, I believe from his manager, the Stone Roses were looking. He's like, oh my god, let me try and get in there. But um, Slash did not go on to join the Stone Roses, as we all know from history. You want to know why Slash didn't get in? Because of his leather pants. Yeah, that's right. They saw Slash wearing leather pants and they're like, well, surely we can't bring in a guy that wears leather pants. Just like, let that sink in for a moment. How funny is that? Like, sorry, Slash, you're one of the best guitarists ever, but we can't let you come in because of your leather pants. We don't accept that. 
So, you know, John was replaced not by Slash, but by somebody else, and the band continued on to tour for another six months. But, you know, after John left the band, the decline of the live shows and the band itself was quite inevitable. Like, the quality of what they were putting out was not really good because John had a lot of the heart and soul and the vibe of the band, and so it just couldn't ever be the same without him. After a few notable festivals where Ian's voice was really not where it should have been, Ian and John officially dissolved the band in October of 1996. So that is the end of the Stone Roses, at least for now. So they are no more and they will be no more for a very long time. But that doesn't mean that the other members stopped music completely. As we know, or maybe as some of you know, Ian went on to come out with some albums But we'll start off with John because John left the band first. So John went on to form the successful band, The Seahorses. So The Seahorses, they released one album called Do It Yourself in May of 1997 before breaking up. Popular songs that they had come out with were Love is the Law, Blinded by the Sun, and You Can Talk to Me. Among others, they had a couple of really good tunes. And John himself released two solo albums as well. So that's kind of what John was doing. The Seahorses were quite big at the time in Manchester as well, just kind of around the area. But, you know, they only released one album. But with that one album came quite a lot of good hits from it. So that's really good for him. In 2007, John actually told the press that he was quitting music to focus on becoming a painter. So that's good for him that he was like, I'm done with this music shit. I'm going on to become a painter. Bye. Peace out. But hey, that's really good for him that he wanted to do something else totally out of left field to kind of just have more of a normal, somewhat normal, humble life. Like, that's really cool. So now we're getting into Ian after the Stone Roses. After the breakup of the band, Ian went to spend some time traveling around the world just to get out of England. I mean, I'm sure he was in his head a lot. You know, he was contemplating a lot of what the band had went through. He went to Spain, Morocco, Mexico, New York, and a few other places. So eventually, when he made his way back to England from his travels, he ended up having to go back living with his parents at the house that he actually grew up in with his brother. It was just kind of at this moment where he thought to himself, there's no more music happening, you know, I've had a good go at music, and that would be that. That's kind of where his mind was at. And so at this point, he was going down the road of doing something also quite left field. He had thought about what his grandfather had done in his life. And his grandfather was some kind of gardener. He would like plant flowers and things like that. And so he thought, all right, that's what I'll do. I will go on to grow flowers and plant flowers. He really thought about that nice kind of easy, honest, simple life. So his heart was set on growing flowers for some time, but he eventually changed his mind after some fans had come up to him And they were like, you're Ian Brown. Like, come on, you know, get on with doing music. Some people were encouraging him to go on with it. And he was like, you know what? Yeah, I am Ian Brown. Let me make some more music. So what he did that I thought was really, really cool of him to do was he upgraded one of the rooms in the house with what little money he had left with some soundproofing stuff for the walls. And he got all of this recording equipment, all of these instruments. He recorded his album, his first solo album, on his own. He did it all on his own. He came out with the tracks, with everything, and he put it in front of record labels to say, listen, I recorded this, I produced this, I did all of this myself. Do you want it? Do you want to sell it? Do you want to come out with it and officially release it or what? So that's what he did. And I'm pretty sure that's where he still wants to be now. If I'm remembering correctly from my research, he really wants to put forward that I did this on my own. Like he's very prolific with coming up with the concepts of the albums that he's doing and the music videos and producing it and having a a hand in kind of a bit of everything, kind of being a jack of all trades with all that entails with coming out with an album. So I honestly give him a lot of kudos for that because that's not an easy thing to do. So, his first album, Unfinished Monkey Business, was released in 1998, and it went on to be number four on the charts. So, in total, Ian went on to release seven solo albums, a remixes album, and a greatest hits collection. Everyone cannot get enough of Ian Brown's music. It's just so really, really good. 
And in particular, people think his third solo album called Music of the Spheres is probably his best. It went on to be number three in the charts. And the hit song from the album called Fear, F-E-A-R, went on to number 13 on the UK singles charts. I would say Fear is up there with Fool's Gold and Love Spreads as being extremely popular dance tracks for the British music culture. It's just so good. And Fear is really different because Fear is an anagram for forget everything and remember. But the lyrics for Fear is about creating different anagrams for what fear could mean. So fear, like for every man a religion, forget everything and remember. It's just really, really creative that he came up with that. I don't know. I just think that's an extremely creative concept. So kudos to him for creating that and being kind of different and being unique in that way. Also in 1998, while on tour for his solo album, Ian was arrested for making threats against an airline stewardess. This was quite very well publicated in the tabloids. Apparently, the story goes, he was drunk, he was on an airplane, and the airline stewardess thought that he was waving her over to, you know, get something. And when she came over, he was confused to like, what's going on? And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were waving me over. And she like kind of waved by, I'm going to head out, whatever. <laughs> and he was like, don't you wave your hand at me. And, and apparently he was so drunk that he threatened to cut her hands off and he made a big to do about it. And so therefore he went to prison because that is not cool at all. He served eight weeks in jail at Strangeways Prison. And he said that in his stint in prison, he wrote a couple of songs that would later go on to be some of his solo work. So that was kind of Ian's kind of little life after the Stone Roses. Manny went on to join the band Primal Scream as their bassist in 96, and he remained in the band until the Stone Roses would eventually reunite. Rennie had mostly been inactive in the music scene after the breakup. He started a band called The Rub in 1999 and played several gigs, but nothing since had really come from that band. He's been kind of somewhat quiet. So Ian was really more so the forefront with making music as a solo artist. Manny had The Seahorses, and that's really kind of where it went. In August of 2009, a 20th anniversary release of their debut album was made with producer John Leckie and Ian Brown that included a collector's box set and some unreleased songs, and one of them being Pearl Bastard. That was quite a successful unreleased song that they came out with for this collection, so that's cool. So now after all is said and done, after all of them had their little bit of time in the music industry on their own, in October of 2011, there were rumors spreading in the music press that there was to be a Stone Roses reunion in the works, but nothing was really seriously confirmed by the band until the 14th of October when the band held a press conference to announce an extensive reunion tour of the world, starting in Warrington as a warm-up. Three main attractions of the tour were homecoming shows in Manchester at Heaton Park on June the 29th through the 30th and July 1st of 2012, plus one show at Phoenix Park in Dublin on July 15th. So those were notably the most popular, really big shows of this tour that they did. 150,000 tickets for the Heaton Park shows sold out in 14 minutes. So that was kind of where the reunion came from. But in the subsequent years following that tour, they played a few more shows and in festivals here and there to massive success and support from the fans. And so that's what they were kind of more so doing. They weren't putting out any albums necessarily. But on May of 2016, they recorded the song All For One, their first song in over 20 years. That was the one that they came out with. And then a second song that they came out with, Beautiful Thing, was released on June 9th. And then on June 24th, 2017, they played at Hampton Park in Glasgow. Ian made kind of a cryptic statement to the crowd saying, Don't be sad that it's over. Be happy that it happened. People were confused. They were like, could this mean that they were breaking up again? What does that even mean? But yeah, this turned out to be the last show that they would ever play because on September 16th, 2019, John confirmed to The Guardian that the band was no more, that they were done, officially, like, that's it. 
No more has been said about if they were to come out with another reunion in subsequent years. I'm not really sure. So that's kind of where we are with the Stone Roses. I wouldn't really expect a reunion tour if they are going to do anything for a really long time because this breakup is kind of fresh within the last few years. That's kind of where we are with the Stone Roses. But something that's kind of a fun fact that I just found out a few days ago that I kind of just wanted to mention was Mono Valley Studios in Herefordshire, which is where Oasis recorded Definitely Maybe, and it was also used by the Stone Roses and many other bands, is actually on sale for over a million pounds. So uh, if you have a million pounds that you want to blow on a very famous recording studio, go right ahead. It's out there. You can look for it. It's, it's out there. I gotta say, I looked at the photos that they put out and I have to really question the interior designer. It's really, really questionable. Like, they have a lot of bedrooms, a lot of bathrooms. They have a random masseuse room with, like, medical shit. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand, frankly. Um, but you can find these photos online. I'm telling you, it's out there. But yeah, you can probably flip it to be a house to live in. It's really nice, though. Like, the property is very nice. I'm not gonna lie. It's a really cute English house in the country on a private road with a cute little backyard and stuff. It's really nice, but the inside, it's a million pounds, but there's gonna be a lot more work done on the interior because, wow, whoever came in to put their touches on that house, absolutely horrible. That would just be my personal opinion, but yeah, I just thought that was funny. That Mono Valley Studios is up for sale if anyone has 1,095,000 pounds. Go for it. <laughs> go for it. If you know someone who's a millionaire, go for it. But yeah, that's kind of where we leave off with the Stone Roses. I appreciate you guys listening. If you've made it this far and you've enjoyed, I greatly appreciate it. I hope you guys have a really awesome day and I will see you guys in the next episode. Bye guys.